0: I ask you to join together with me in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in our worship, we have committed ourselves to you. And Lord, we do come to this place with this earnest desire in our hearts to, to sense your presence, to be in your presence, and to be able to sing praise to your name, but to, Lord, know that you are near and that you are here. And yet, Lord, we also recognize that we are weak in ourselves and. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to take that sense of your presence to a, to a deeper level. That you empower us to know your presence. And Lord, I pray that by the same Holy Spirit that empowers us to know your presence, that with that same Spirit, you would allow us to be able to sense the presence of each other as we are together. Help make us truly sensitive to those who surround us even at this moment in the pews that we have and the, as well as in the lives that we live, in the homes that we have, in the workplace where we are. I pray the power of your Holy Spirit to make us sensitive uh, to the needs and to the appointments that are made by you so that we might be able to be your servants and that, Lord, we might be your people and that we might be known as the men and women of God. This we pray in the powerful name of the one who did love us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There is a story that is probably several centuries old, uh, told of a mountain village in Europe, where there was a wealthy nobleman who uh, wondered what sort of legacy he could leave to his people. Uh, And he made a very good decision. He decided to build them a church. No one was permitted to see the plans that he made or to see the inside of the building until it was finished. But at this grand opening, the people gathered and they they took a tour of this new structure. And and they were were amazed at the beauty of this new church. Everything about it was a masterpiece. But then someone happened to notice and and spoke up and said, Wait a minute. Where are the lamps? It's really quite dark in here. How will the church be lighted? And the nobleman then pointed at the brackets that had been placed on the walls. And then he passed among them and he gave each family a lamp. And he explained to them that they were to bring their lamps with them each time they came to worship. Each time you are here, he said, that place where you are seated will be lighted. And each time you are not here, that place will be dark. This is to remind you that whenever you fail to join your brothers and sisters, some part of God's house will be darkened. Now I confess I've I've carried that story to heart over the last few months as we have been looking at that one word in the New Testament. That is embedded into every command that is found that describes what God expects of His people to be and to do as they gather together. What we are to do as we gather together. It is that Greek word, and by now I hope you, under, you, you it's familiar. It's the word "alelon" or what we have translated in our Bibles as "one another." And you may remember that it is used over a hundred times in the New Testament, over thirty times in the Gospels and over 40 times by the Apostle Paul to describe what God expects his people to be about. And we've looked at a number of those things over the last two months. And, and you realize that it, over a hundred of these things seem to resonate all the way through. We are told in the scriptures that our business is as it were, is to be devoted to one another, to honor one another, to be of the same mind as one another, to accept one another, to admonish one another, to greet one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to build each other up and to bear with one another. I won't go over all a hundred. There are so many that are there. Over a hundred times in the New Testament. It's as if God has revealed uh, that in his building, which is the church, he has placed a metaphorical lamp in each one of our hands. And that it is up to us then to bring meaning into our fellowship and to do it with one another and to light this place up. That our fellowship is with each other as much as it is with him. Now having focused on just a few of those 100 one another's over the last two months, I have saved the very best for last and it is probably the most familiar of all, and it is the one that stands at the core of all the rest. If I were to ask you, or had asked you at the very beginning, to describe the one, one another that you could think of, I sound like I'm repeating myself, don't I? The one, one another that you could think of, my guess is that this would be the one. In fact, it is known in the scriptures as the great commandment. In John chapter 13, verse 34, there we read a new commandment, Jesus saying, I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. Of all the alelons in the New Testament, it is used the most. Sixteen times by Jesus Christ himself. And it comes in the form of a command. Love one another. Now I'm sure you've heard more than your share of sermons about love and you've read more than your share of books on the topic about love, loving one another. And so it's a little difficult for me to think that I can say anything really new this morning, but I'm going to ask you to indulge me as we go back to the basics and refresh what we must do with each other. The first is to define the term love. Love itself should be seen as an act of will. It is a decision to love more than it is a matter of feeling or natural affection or attraction. It is a decisive act of will to love and express love to one another. That's why it should be no surprise to you that you find it as a command from our Lord Jesus Christ. To love requires us to make a decision to love as an act of obedience. Consider the way Jesus gave us this command. Whoever loves God must love his brother. That's how it appears in John chapter 14, verse 15, and 23 through 24, and chapter 15, verse 12, and 14 and 17, and 1 John 2, verse 2, and 5, verse 3, and 2 John 1, 16. Did you get all of that? There will be a test afterwards. You must love. That's how Jesus puts it. Whoever loves God must love his brother. That word must brings out the fact that this is an act of will. It is a decision that is made in obedience and in reliance to God. Whoever loves God must love his brother. It's a decision that we need to make. And one that allows others then to make a decision about us. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 13 verse 35. He Just after saying a new commandment I give to you, love one another, Jesus then goes on to say this, as I have loved you, in other words, in the very same manner in which I have loved you, uh, so you must love one another. And then he goes on to say this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I want to pause at that one very carefully. Years ago, uh, I read in Francis Schaeffer's, uh, Francis Schaeffer in the 70s a, a little book entitled The Mark of a Christian. It was one of a handful of books that helped shape my, my walk with God and form some of my convictions about Christ. And in it was a thought that hit me right between the eyes. In this verse, Schaeffer points out, whether we know it or not, Jesus is handing over the responsibility of the judgment of the authenticity of our faith into the hands of the world. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. It is as if, with that, when we arrive at the judgment seat of Christ and present then our evidence of our commitment to him, he would put up his hand and say, whoa, 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 before you speak, silence. And then he will turn to the world at large and then ask them for their testimony of you, of us. What say you? Did they love one another? What say you? Did, did he love his, his wife, his children? Did she love her church, her community? Did, did they love one another? Ebenezer Baptist, what is it about you that validates everything that you claim to believe? What will it be that tells everyone watching that we, together, are the people of Jesus Christ? According to Jesus, it's all a matter of decisively choosing to embrace Christ-like love with one another. And that is the most compelling testimony that could ever be made, and it is one that has been made throughout history, and it is a legacy that we carry even today. Somewhere between 117 and 138 AD, an investigation was ordered by the Emperor Hadrian about this strange new group of people called Christians or Christ followers. The investigator, a pagan named Aristides, wrote his report and it read this. The Christians know and trust their God. They placate those who oppress them and they make enemies their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their wives are absolutely pure and their daughters are modest. The men abstain from unlawful marriages and all other impurity. If any of them have bondwomen or children, they persuade them to become Christians for the love they have toward them. And when they become so, they call them brother or sister without distinction. They love one another. They rescue the orphan from him who does violence. He who has gives ungrudgingly to him who has not. If they see a stranger, they take him into their dwelling, and they rejoice over him as if he were a real brother. For they do not have food to spare. They fast two or three days that they might supply them with necessary food. But the deeds which they do, they do not proclaim to the ears of the multitude. They take care that no man shall perceive them. Thus they labor to become righteous. Truly, he concludes, This is a new people, and there is something divine within them. That was written in the second century A.D., and yet it is still true today. This is our legacy. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. But it's one thing to know that to be true to accept this as a doctrine. It's something else to put it into practice. How is it that we are to love one another? Well, that's the nice thing about this. There is nothing arcane or unusual or uniquely religious or systematically theological about this. The lessons of love that we are to pursue can be found in the most treasured relationships that God gives. We can talk about the dynamics of love when it becomes, comes to being a member of the church in the same way that we can talk about the dynamics of love when it comes to being in a family, marriage and children and all. And the Bible does the same thing, drawing straight lines between what is expressed within human treasured relationships and then within the church. And leaves us with ample instruction on how it is to work in our lives at large. But believe me, it is work. It does not just happen. In fact, if you do not make it your work and you do not give it your decisive attention, it dies. Love dies. Do you have an idea of what it's like to see love wither and die? That's a very sobering question. And I don't ask it lightly. A number of years ago, I came across the book by Pat and Jill Williams entitled "Rekindling," Re- Rekindled, Keeping the Glow Alive. Pat Williams was the general manager of the Chicago Bulls basketball team when his wife Jill announced to him one dark day in December of 1982 that their marriage had died. Despite their shared faith in Christ, Jill <clears throat> had just suffered the neglect of Pat's attention inattention, actually, and found herself left empty and primarily senseless. She told him that she simply didn't care anymore. It wasn't a matter of hate, but one of no emotion at all. No expression, no anger, nothing. She wasn't going to go anywhere. She didn't intend to file for a divorce. She simply just didn't have anything more left inside. Can you imagine Pat's reaction to that revelation? As he wrote, he spoke of his desperation and of helplessness and how he needed to learn what it was to to fall in love all over again. To his credit, he became a man on a mission. And a mission that was defined by two prayers. The first was that God would break him and that secondly, God would build him. With a wisdom to recapture the love that they had once had. And in answer to that prayer, he discovered what he called the best formula, B-E-S-T. It stood for blessing, edifying, sharing, and touching. And to be honest, each one of those four biblical expressions of love at work are to be found really in the Bible. If you ever go into the Bible and discover and, and study the word blessing, you'll find each one of those four things at play when it comes to blessing someone with your love. Now this blessing principle revolves around first the tongue. That's the B. The B stands for blessing. And it begins with the tongue. Speaking well of the other person. Responding to the other person with good words. And words that are intended to bring out life. Communicating appreciation verbally. And prayerfully, in order to bring God's blessing into to the other person's life. More on that in just a moment. But for now, B, think this, stands for blessing. E stood for edify, which means to build up the other person through personal encouragement, verbal praise and compliments, and if, and if necessary, correction or criticism, but done with Kindness. Living out the principle of something like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, where together we make a decision that no unwholesome word will proceed from our mouths only such a word as is good for edification, e-edify. I think of that at times and I cringe when I think how easy it is with, with my buddies to fall into that banter of trash talk that we often do. We try to one-up each other with little cutting comments and, and do it with some degree of humor, and then realize that I've fallen into a bit of a trap. I need to think twice in order to be able to edify, in order to give someone else the best. E stands for edify. And S stands for sharing. That means for love to mean anything, it needs to mean something. And the key is in the sharing. That means sharing of time and of activities and of interests and concerns and of ideas, your spiritual walk and your affection and your attention. It means the giving of yourself and listening to one another with undivided attention and investing time in order to share life. I think of that oftentimes whenever people say, well, I don't have a whole lot of time. I've got a very busy life, but I give my children quality time. It's I heard a a criticism of that one time. If you were to go to a restaurant and you were to order steak and then you got a one-inch square cube and you said, what is this? They said, well, it is the most quality piece of steak to be found in the city. You would say, is that it? It's not just quality, it's quantity as well. Taking the time and investing the moments in order to be able to do the sharing. So S stands for sharing, and finally, according to the best formula, T. T stands for touching. Now I need to be very careful here in order to preserve the innocence of that term, touch. There is a gentle biblical case upon which this is to be understood. Throughout the Bible, when you see the profound nature of the blessings to be found, you will find that they are always accompanied with a meaningful touch. With the patriarchs in the Old Testament, they passed on their blessing, but they did it also with the touch of their hand. The patriarchs in the Old Testament, but it was also the integral part of blessing. Whenever Jesus would bring about blessing, he would would touch one another in a very appropriate and gentle fashion. No matter how much you bless, edify, and share, it is brought home with an appropriate touch. Maybe a hand on the shoulder. Maybe a hand held together in prayer. Maybe in the hospital, just just to hold their hand. Whatever it is, it's a tenderness that communicates care. It calms fears. It soothes pain. It brings comfort. And it offers emotional security. Well, back to that story told by Pat Williams of his quest to make love his business giving it his best, he writes this. It was work. And it was hard work. And the response was slow, but it was sure. It was not something solved in hours or days, but it became the result of a relentless daily commitment, which would then now become a lifestyle by which we learn to love one another. Love was rekindled, And whether... It needs to be kindled or rekindled. We're talking about deliberate, careful, and thoughtful work that needs to be transacted among each other. It doesn't just happen. It requires diligent and prayerful attention because, after all, it is God's work. For as Jesus says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Ebenezer Baptist Church, how will anyone know that you are the disciples of Jesus Christ? It will come as a test passed as you learn to bless one another with your love. Well, let me pull our thoughts together with a very practical and realistic illustration. I mentioned earlier that there is nothing uniquely religious about the lessons that teach us what love is to be. Those critical lessons of love are learned in the most treasured relationships that we already possess, whether it's at home, between a husband and a wife, or between a parent and a child. Such lessons carry over into the relationships that God gives, even within the fellowship of the church. So let me share one lesson to bring it home. It came from a moment I shared with one of my greatest heroes of the faith. His name was Earl Livesey. Earl came to the church that I pastored in Chicago back in the 1980s. At first he came by himself. He sat in the back of the congregation and back in the church um, and and, and was a bit hidden at first. And and I I went about the business of meeting him. And and when I did, I discovered that he had just recently become a Christian. And and together we got together and I began to see him grow in his faith. And soon he began to attend church uh, with his boys. He had four sons. Uh, and, and, and they would come with him on Sundays, sometimes one of them, two, sometimes three. Sometimes all four would be able to make it, and they ranged uh, from, I think, from 12 to 20, they, they the four boys all together, uh, and one, the oldest one being a college student. Now, his wife went to a different church, which was fine. She would come with them all at times, and she was so thankful to see what was happening in her home uh, with her boys and with their father. One day I got a call from her asking if I would drive to the University of Illinois, Chicago Circle, the hospital there. Earl was having tests, she said, and, and it asked if I could be there. It was one of those God moments where I arrived just, uh, just minutes before the doctors came with the results of his tests. and they, they read a very dark and a very tragic verdict. Earl had cancer. And he only had months to live. I remember sitting with Earl in stunned silence hearing the report. And as they left, we spent several hours in quiet prayer and just sorting through. And, and then over the days that followed, as the doctors arranged pain treatments and care, together with Earl, we set our hearts on, on the task of settling his affairs. And, and he asked me to help him make the most of his remaining time. He didn't know quite what to do, but he knew he wanted to get it done. The one thing that he that mattered most to him is that he wanted to leave his sons and his wife with the blessing of his love. So together we prayed, and one of the things that God led him to do was to write out his his reflections in a letter for each one of his sons and also for his wife. And each one of them, he had a letter and. he And he he worked on that letter. He He was not really a very highly educated man, and so he asked me to help him with the wordsmithing. But in it, his heart was on paper. And he wrote, even as he weakened, he asked me to help him find the right words to express his heartfelt love, and then finally the time came. It was about two weeks before his death. And he asked me to come to the hospital, as he then had arranged, to meet with each one of them, one at a time in his room. He wasn't sure that he had the energy for the moment, so he wanted me there to, to, to pick up the reading if, 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 if he failed. And I remember that afternoon standing quietly in the corner, an observer to this holy scene, as he gently read each one their letter and would pause from moment to moment just to kind of add a few more words and reflections. In fact, I still remember his oldest son. The letters, they were, they were pretty profound. He, he reflected on what he saw in them, their strengths and their weaknesses. He also spoke of their future as he could see it. And with the oldest son, he even went so far as to stop in his letter and speak about the qualities of the woman that he saw his oldest son marrying. He said, she's going to need to be like this. And he went through a list of traits. It's a beautiful thing to see. And then he stopped and he goes, you know what? This almost sounds like that student nurse who's been taking care of me. (laughs) It was no surprise that a year and a half later, the two of them got married. Beautiful, beautiful thing. It was a legacy that was handed to each one of them. And you could see it in their faces realizing that they were receiving a gift, but a gift of love. And later Earl expressed to me how thankful he was for such a moment and some degree of regret that he hadn't been doing that for each day of their lives up until that point. And later at his funeral I noticed how each of the boys carried their letter, and his wife as well, and they held them close like treasures throughout the service. As I saw them during the funeral, a picture came to my mind of Earl as he would approach those pearly gates of heaven, standing there ready to present his case, only to have Jesus then silence him and then turn to ask, What, what say you, sons? Was he my disciple? What what say you, wife, was he my disciple? And in my mind's eye, I could even see Jesus turning to me and say, what say you, pastor? Was he my disciple? And to those in the congregation, what say you? Was he my disciple? To those who were in his, in his workplace, what say you? Was he my disciple? And there would be no doubt in my mind that each one would come up with a single answer. Yes. No question. Why? Because he had love. One or another. Ebenezer Baptist, take a moment right now. Just open your heart and think of someone close to you. It may be just within the confines of your home, your, your wife, your husband, your kids. I would like to think that it might be within the confines of your church and your fellowship, a brother or sister in Christ. It may even be a pastor. This is a a matter of community and I would like to think that it's more than just one person that would come to your mind. And then I would ask you, compose a blessing for that person. Some way for you to be able to express to them your love because in that comes the love of God. And then share it with them. And pray it for by that comes blessing upon them. And through that, By this shall all men know that you are his disciples. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, the words of Scripture are so rich and so real. And you have chosen not to leave us in any matter of doubt, but that from the very pages of Scripture to speak of your love to us. And most firmly and clear through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, there are words of Scripture that come to us that they, they bring life to our heart. And we hear those words, the Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, even as he has lifted his countenance upon you and given him his love. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen. Let's stand at this time.